The scripture reading for this evening comes from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jugs there for the Jewish rites of the purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together this evening to share together in um, the confession of our sin, the confession of what we believe to be true. Um, the praise of your name, and Lord, now the preaching of your word, and eventually the sharing in your body and blood. I, I pray that you will draw our hearts together tonight and descend on us, and let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Um, well, happy Trinity Sunday to you all. Uh, it's uh, good to be with you. It's apropos on Trinity Sunday that we're reading this text out of John chapter 2 and wrestling with it a little bit. Uh, Trinity Sunday, um, well, what do we do with the doctrine of the Trinity? It's, it's certainly a doctrine that we all know if you don't confess it to be true, well, there's kind of, you know, smoke and hell and things like that. Um, so it's a very important doctrine, but as far as what it actually means in the life of the faith, well, that's a challenge that I think Christians continually wrestle with to think, what does the doctrine of the Trinity, the fact that God is one and yet he's three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sharing in the same divine essence and sharing the same divine will. Uh, last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday, and um, I happened to be preaching at the Advent on that Sunday, wrestling with Acts chapter 2, and thinking a little bit about the Holy Spirit. What happens when the Holy Spirit shows up? Well, in Acts chapter 2, the roof blows off. I mean, it's, it's wild. And people are talking in tongues, and, and uh, you know, Phrygians, and Elamites, and Iraqis, and Iranians are all there in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden they can hear. I mean, it's a, the miracle of hearing is occurring and what are they hearing? They're hearing the message of Jesus. The Tower of Babel is being undone there at Acts chapter 2. I mean, the Pentecost is the crossroads of time. But it's, what's fascinating about Acts chapter 2 is, and, and the whole notion about the Holy Spirit, I mean, what excites more theological controversy today than the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? I mean, I had a woman tell me this morning in church, you know, that she has a friend and Jesus showed up at her bedpost twice and had a chat. I mean, what do we do with stuff like that? 
Or the kind of wild moments where the Holy Spirit does things and we have to kind of open up our eyes and make sure that everything's okay and we're still here. And I think in, in the middle of all this, our doctrine of the Trinity is a really important matter because there are Christians today that can treat the Holy Spirit in abstraction from a commitment to Jesus Christ. Because what happens in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit shows up? Well, when the Holy Spirit shows up, now all of a sudden people are proclaiming and understanding the good news of Jesus Christ. So when the Holy Spirit shows up, people want to talk and rejoice and praise and hear about the gospel and Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's will and Jesus' will are not separated. They are one. That is a full commitment to the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, tonight, as we come to John chapter 2, we're in a very similar land. Uh, This is Jesus' first miracle out of the gate. I I want to say a few things about this text because in the church's calendar year, and I think you all talk about that around here. Um, you, you have in the front of your bulletin, this is Trinity Sunday. Did you talk about Pentecost last week? Maybe, I don't know. But Pentecost was last Sunday. We've just come out of the season of Easter. Um, well, John chapter 2 is often read in Epiphany. This is an Epiphany text. This is an early January text. It's a text that talks about God pulling back the veil and revealing the fact that this person, Jesus of Nazareth, This human being that walked on the earth and kicked up dust in the first century world and ate falafel from the corner, I I don't know what they were eating back then, but pita or whatever he was eating, um, that that Jesus of Nazareth who fixed our table last week is the very God of the universe incarnated in human flesh. And there are these texts in the Bible where the veil gets pulled back and all of a sudden we're able to see this is no ordinary figure. This is a significant figure. This is God in the flesh. Another epiphany text is the transfiguration text, where you have Peter and James and John on the mountain, all of a sudden the, the veil is pulled back, Jesus is revealed in his glory, and there's Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah, poof, they're gone, it's Jesus alone, and it's a, it's a pretty wild moment. That's an epiphany moment, it's an unveiling moment. Well, this is the case with John chapter 2 as well. So what about John chapter 2? Well, before we hop into that, let me say a few things, if you don't mind, about John's gospel. And I'll be mindful of our time, and I don't want to get too much into teacherly mode. One thing I do want to say about John's gospel, and it's pertinent to the fact that we're in Trinity Sunday. John's gospel, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you've read around in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that in and of itself is a fascinating subject matter. In fact, I'm sorry, I'm in teacherly mode, and I'll come back. Um, but in fact, the, the, the whole medium, the technology of the book, uh, a binding with pages in it, rather than the scroll, may in fact have its genesis in the housing of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in a single document, and the early church insistence that these books travel together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in a single codex, in a single book, traveling around, meant to be mutually interpretive the one of the other. All of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, making their claim about Jesus. All of them giving us insights into the person and work of Jesus that if we didn't have Matthew and only had Mark, Luke, and John, we'd be bereft. And if we didn't have John and just had the other three, we would have lost something. But we have the fourfold gospel, all of them witnessing to the singularity of the one gospel revealed in Jesus. And a way of thinking about this, I hope I haven't lost you yet, but a way of thinking about this is um, uh, impressionistic painting. Do you like painting and art? 
Um, I didn't until I got married. My wife is an art educator by training and likes to fiddle with paints. And so, you know, to, to have conversations, I've tried to pretend to get into art as well. And um, One of the, the, the period that I like, I mean, I, I don't know what you are. If you go to a, a gallery in Chicago or New York or somewhere overseas, I'm happy to go through the Renaissance period. It's fascinating. I'll go through, you know, the Baroque period. Yeah, it's okay. Um, but I'm making a mad dash for the Impressionist period. I, I'm just completely smitten with it. I know it's a little, you know, it's a little... Uh, anyway, I, I love it. Van Gogh and Matisse and Gauguin, all those guys. And you go there and you see these paintings and you realize, wow, there really is something rather evocative about these paintings. Well, when we lived in Scotland um, years ago, there was a traveling art exhibit for Monet's French seascape period. So my wife and I got on a train. We went to Edinburgh, walked through the gallery. And, and what did you see? You know, five paintings side by side of the same beach and rock and ocean. But they were five very different paintings. Very different in their interpretive approach. Because one was painted in the morning, so the light was coming from a different angle. One was painted in the evening, and then you have a different angle of light. One was painted in the winter. And the whole view was different because of the season. All of it was from the impression of Monet in the given moment dealing with the reality that he was seeing. Uh, the Dutch theologian Herman Boving says that's a good way of thinking of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not necessarily of realistic painting. There's a bottle, a toaster, and an orange. And I'm going to try to paint those. You've seen all those paintings, right? I'm going to paint that. No, it's more impressionistic. It corresponds to reality, but it's interpretive reality. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they let the divinity of Jesus unfold in the movement of the narrative. It's a, it's a fascinating thing, isn't it? You get into Matthew or into Luke and Jesus heals somebody or he spits and makes some clay and rubs it on a guy's eyes, did him Mr. blind, and, and then all of a sudden he says, and by the way, don't, um, you remember this? Don't tell anybody about that. Let's just keep that between us. Jesus seems to have a sort of pressure in Matthew, Mark, and Luke to keep the lid on a little bit. And then in time, his divinity becomes more and more unveiled. Now, of course, we know the whole plot and we know the whole deal, but that's how the narratives unfold, not John. John's gospel is completely different in that regard than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. How does John's gospel begin? Here we are on Trinity Sunday, right? John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the word was God. Well, that's a statement about the identity of God being one and the identity of Jesus being co-equal with that oneness. Right out of the gate. So we're not left with any wrestling and wrangling in John's gospel with who is this figure? You want to know who this figure is? John chapter 1 verse 1. This is God. John chapter 1 verse 14. This is God who has now become flesh. And is tabernacling among us. John chapter 1 verse 18. And oh by the way. If you want to know what God is like. If you want to know the Father. Take a long and hard look at Jesus. Because Jesus reveals the Father. That's a Trinitarian claim. So right out of the gate in John's gospel. We see that Jesus. Fully man. Fully God. In one, in one substance. In one figure. Is moving among us to how does John chapter 1 verse end? To do what John the Baptist said he was going to do. Behold, the Lamb of God, who's taking away all the sins of the world. That's what this God in human flesh is here to do. He's to take away the sins of the world in his own self-giving. That's one comment I want to say about John's gospel. Second thing I want to say about John's gospel. John's gospel, I, I just, I don't know, I'm, I'm taken with it. I'm smitten with it. Because John's gospel, and new literary English he types out here. Uh, who like to read novels and stuff. 
You can appreciate this. Because John's gospel is doing multiple things at the same time, right off of the literal verbal sense of the text itself. You'll read a story and you'll go, well, that's an interesting story. But then you step back and you press into it a little bit more and you realize, oh, there's much more going on here than just a relaying of a story. There's something textured and layered and multidimensional, I guess is a way of saying it. For example, I'll just use one example, but there are multiple. Well, I said one example. I'll give you three. Uh, John chapter 3, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. And he says, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot be a child of God. And, you know, Nicodemus, very learned man, says a very stupid thing. He says, what do you mean? I've got to crawl back in the birth canal and get born again? And Jesus says, no, you have to be born by the water and the Spirit. The church, through its history, has read John 3 as a baptismal text. And rightly so. Water and the Spirit. Uh, John chapter 6, Jesus says a rather wild thing about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. No, I mean, well, it's, it's hard not to read that in a Eucharistic way, although I realize it's a very contested reading in the history of the church, but there, there Jesus is saying something. John chapter 7, Jesus says, I am the river that springs forth into everlasting life. In John chapter 17, the night before Jesus dies, he's saying a high priestly prayer, which by the way, I think is a kind of holy of holies in the Bible. You actually get to see Jesus by the Spirit in an inner Trinitarian communication with the Father in a whole chapter. Where do you get that in the Bible? Not very many places, actually. Here is Jesus praying, and we get to hear it. And what is he doing? He's praying for himself and for his disciples, and he's praying for you and for me. But John 17 is doing more than telling us about what Jesus did the night before he died. John chapter 17 is also showing us What Jesus is doing right now as our risen high priest. You want to know what Jesus is doing right now before the Father in the life of the Holy Spirit? You know what he's doing? He's doing John 17. He's praying. And he's praying for you. He's interceding for you. And if you'd like to know what the content of Jesus' prayers might look like, look at John 17. He's doing that right now. So John's gospel has got multiple things going on. And it invites a life of study. Tonight I want to go back to John chapter 2 because I think John chapter 2 operates on this kind of multi-level, dimensional, double narrative reading. I want to do the surface reading, then I want to do two reflections on the textured second look of the reading. Okay? So, let me make sure it's not 6.05 yet. It's not. Okay. So on the surface, this text is straightforward. And pound for pound, I think this story is a pretty good one. Jesus has called his disciples in the previous chapter... A wedding takes place in Cana, which happens to be the hometown of Nathaniel. Nathaniel's from Cana. He just got called at the end of John chapter 1, and now they're going back to Nathaniel's hometown. Cana's about nine miles away north of, of Nazareth, and Jesus and his disciples must have some connection to this family because they've been invited to the wedding feast. Now, these were serious parties, right? A wedding feast in this particular time, and some of you have... Greek and Middle Eastern background in your family, you can appreciate this. This wedding feast lasted for as long as a week. That's a long party. And the responsibility rested on the shoulders of the bridegroom and his family. Well, you know how the story goes, right? Uh, They run out of wine. And a lot of questions are raised by this text that aren't answered. Why does Mary take the responsibility on her shoulders, Jesus' mother? We don't know. I mean, some have argued that perhaps she had a special relationship with the family. 
Some have suggested that maybe she was even responsible for the catering aspect. Who knows? But we do know this. To run out of wine in this particular context, in this particular world, was a very serious social faux pas. Now, I mentioned this. My family, my mother, was born in Beirut, Lebanon. So she's, if you can think about a Middle Eastern Lebanese woman, that's mama, right? It's my mom. And I think this is deep in her. I can appreciate this. I know what it's like for my mom to be concerned in any gathering that food and drink is always there. I mean, some of you can appreciate that. Well, this is what's happening here. Don't let the food, don't let the drink run out. And now Mary comes to the rescue. Leading to a scene that really makes all mothers uncomfortable. I can't really downplay it because it is uncomfortable. She comes to Jesus. She tells Jesus about the problem of the wine. And Jesus kind of rebukes his mom. It's a mild rebuke, but it's a little chastisement to his mom. What is this problem to you and to me? Can you imagine that? I mean, if I said that to my mom, it wouldn't go well. Well, this is not my problem. This is not your problem. And then he says something rather provocative given John's gospel. This is these double layers here. My time, my hour has not yet come. Jesus' hour in the gospel of John is unequivocally associated with his death on the cross and his exaltation after his death. So why would he say here in John chapter 2, my hour has not yet come, if he's talking about the cross? This says something about the signs in John's gospel. And by the way, interestingly enough, there are seven of them. These seven signs, the wedding at Cana being the first, all of them are anticipating his hour which is about to come. In other words, you can think of the cross as casting a long shadow over all of these signs that come before, building a kind of pressure pot or tsunami, whatever metaphor you want, building to that big moment of God's self-unveiling in the cross. And when Jesus says, my hour's not yet come, he's saying, it's not the cross time yet, but the shadow of the cross in John chapter 2 begins to lay itself over the narrative. So, the prerogative of Jesus' motherhood, it's forfeited in the light of Jesus' messianic mission from his father. But there's a sense of expectation in the air here. It's fascinating. You can feel it building. Mary tells the servants... You do whatever he tells you to do. So she's leaving her request in Jesus' hands, and she's trusting him with the outcome. Now, we could stop and talk about this for a while, but let me, re- let me repeat that, because it's Mary being the exemplar of a life of faith. What is Mary doing? She's leaving her request in Jesus' hands, and she's trusting him with the outcome. Jesus, this is yours. I told you about the problem, you've given me a little rebuke, I'll step back, but hey, servants, by the way, if he tells you to do something, hop to it. And now Jesus acts. He sees the stone jars. Jars that would have been present at any feast for such an activity as this. Why? For the necessity of ritual washings and purification. People had to get clean by the law, by the rules of the law, to come together and to eat together. They had to wash their hands, they had to get clean. And these are large jars capable of 20 to 30 gallons of water. So, how many jars? Six jars, 20 to 30 gallons, little ACT moment for all of us, SAT, da 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 120 to 180 gallons of water. We're going to come back to the significance of that in a moment. Needless to say, that is a lot of water. 
And that's going to become a lot of wine. And Jesus tells the servants, you fill those jars all the way up to the brim. Now, there's a controversy in the reading of this text that comes next. Most of the readers have traditionally understood that the water in the stone jars is the water that is turned into wine. In other words, when he says, draw out the water, it's just assumed what Jesus is saying here is draw out the water from the pitchers. But others and some serious commentators on John's gospel say that's probably not intended here on the basis of the original reading of the language. Why? They think that the particular term used means that Jesus tells them to draw water not from the jars but from the well itself. Why? Well, perhaps because Jesus is saying something here about the fact that these stone jars for ritual purity and purification, according to the old customs of the law, I'm about to do something new. That's the old way. I'm showing you something new. That's possibly true. I'm not going to adjudicate that argument tonight, but just so that you know, there's some fascinating discussion about where does this water actually come from. But wherever it comes from, the well or the jars, after drawing the water, they take it to the master of the feast, And here's where it gets fun and God-unveiling-like, Trinity-like. So they take it to the master of the banquet, presumably the groom's father. And um, I don't know, I guess he has a good nose for wine. This stuff he's drinking, it's first-rate wine. Not two-buck chuck, you know, Trader Joe's. Have you gotten caught by that stuff? Yeah, it's all right. I mean, this is like more like Chateauneuf du Pop, I guess, something like that. It's quality wine. It knows, it's kind of complex. with flavors that seem to compound on each other, such that fruit and earth and acid, minerals, they all balance with one another in such a way to create an unusual and a special human experience. Wow, that's really good wine. And the master understands why this is so surprising. You know we're several days into this feast, don't you? People have been drinking quite a bit. Now... Some of you may have grown up in a tradition like I did. This text causes an enormous amount of trouble for teetotalers. Any of you grew up in a teetotaling home? I did, right? So I grew up in a teetotaling home. We'd have this text preached on from time to time. And the explanation that was always given about what the master of the ceremony was saying here went like this. And tell me, I'm sure you heard this too. I know I did. Why did they save the bad wine for later? Not because it was an alcoholic sort of you know, moment, but because your palate gets kind of funny after a while, and you can tell good wine at the beginning, but later on you can't really tell the good wine from the bad wine, and it's all a, a palate thing. Well, if that helps, you know, teetotalers sleep at night, go with it. But that's certainly not what's being said in John chapter 2, right? Um, why can they not tell the good wine from the bad wine? Did you hear it read tonight? Because they've already drunk deeply, right? They're tipsy. They're inebriated. They're at a party. We all expect second-rate wine when you don't really care whether it's good wine or bad wine anymore. That's the point here. But in the middle of that moment, Jesus creates something really special. And in doing so, John's gospel is telling us something. That he's manifesting his glory. In this first public sign. And he's doing so in an exuberant way. This is a great story. I don't know if there's going to be Friday night movie night in heaven where they replay stories from the Bible on the big screen. I hope so. 
I'd love to see this one. What a great one. And the surface count of the story, it's enough. That first reading we just did, that's great. We could end. It's, it's sufficient. Why? Well, we get a sense of the importance of the life and ministry of Jesus. He's beginning his earthly ministry. He's revealing his glory. This is his first sign. With a sign understood as a miraculous act to elicit faith. To get Jesus and his disciples out of the gate. And on the way down the road toward the cross and the resurrection. Amen. Let's go home. That's enough. But there's more here. On this second reading. So much more beyond the simple narrative account. And John's gospel, I should say, anticipates readers like you tonight who will be patient and attentive when reading a text like this, allowing it to do more. Maybe we'll call it the difference between surface meanings and bonus meanings. I'm only going to mention two, and I find both of them interesting. Number one, the Cana miracle in John chapter 2 takes place on the seventh day of Jesus' public ministry. Do you remember how John's gospel begins? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Do you know that phrase, in the beginning? Does that sound familiar to you? It's Genesis 1 language. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It reminds us of Genesis 1. And John's gospel intentionally uses language from Genesis and the creation account to identify the Word who becomes flesh. The self-same God who created the world in Genesis chapter 1. Well, after the prologue in John's gospel, and there's no fluff, there's no fat left on the meat of John's gospel. Everything is trimmed to perfection. So if it's here, it's here for a reason. And this is what John says. We have the testimony of John the Baptist about the one who will come after him. And it says in John's gospel, that happened on the first day. The next day, day number two, Jesus sees, John sees Jesus and he declares him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The next day, day day three, Jesus calls his first disciples, Andrew and Simon. And then the next day, day four, Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel. And notice how John chapter two, verse one begins. And on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. One, two, three, four, plus three equals seven. Now listen. I know this stuff can get weird. Some of you have checked out just now. You, you think uh, you know, you've seen these weird s- stories or Bible reading, Bible code stuff. If you put three Hebrew letters backwards in Genesis, it tells you that JFK dies on November. I mean, I, I, I get it. I don't like that stuff either. Okay. But that's, I have to think something important is going on here with the number seven. It's indicating that the revelation of God's glory, his coming into the world to save and redeem, His pulling back the veil in this first act at Cana, at the wedding, is happening on the seventh day. The seventh day of his uh, beginning of his ministry. Well, why is that important? Why is that significant? Why do you think John is shaping all this in this creation context? In the beginning was the word, seven days. On the seventh day he begins because of the significance of the seventh day of creation. Think about the days of creation. First day, second day, third day, he makes light and darkness, and then he separates the sky from the land, and then he makes the the sea, and he separates the sea, and then all of a sudden you have 
day one is connected to day four. Now this light has becomes luminary bodies, sun, moon, stars. And then on day five, you've got uh, fishes that are going around. And then day six, you have humanity. And, and then what, and what does it say all through there? And morning and evening, and it was the first day. And morning and evening, it was the second day. And morning and evening, it was the third day. But then when you get to day chapter seven, it says what? And it was morning. And God rested on the seventh day from his activity. God ceased from creation. There is no evening on day seven. God operates from day seven right now in his providential and redemptive oversight of the world. Day seven is his place. And by the way, I mean, this, again, it's crazy. I'm fascinated. Because Martin Luther, in his commentary on Genesis, says this. These are kind of speculative theological questions, but maybe you'll find them interesting. Martin Luther says, even if Adam and Eve had never sinned, even if they said, serpent, take a hike, and never wanted that fruit in the first place, they would have enjoyed fellowship with God and with one another and with creation, but in time, God would have taken them from that mode of existence in to his seventh day of existence. Because you have the end time or eschatology even built into the first seven days of creation. Why? Because the seventh day is God's space. It's the space from which God oversees and directs and governs his world and his creation towards his own redemptive purposes. And here Jesus comes onto the scene and his first miracle that's pulling the veil back and showing this is how God is going to redeem the world. This is how God providentially is going to order all things for his glory and for the manifestation of his kingdom. And Jesus is doing it on the seventh day, the exact place where God himself operates in his governance in his oversight of the world. I certainly believe Uh, that John is thinking very clearly and penetratingly about the seventh day here. Number two. The Old Testament is loaded with imagery about a messianic banquet. And a messianic banquet, you find it in Isaiah chapter 25. You find it in places like Zechariah. And this messianic banquet is a banquet that is marked by the overflow of wine. Right? And so here's Jesus turning water into wine showing us that the messianic age that was promised in the Old Testament is actually happening right now. And by the way, it's not just happening now, it's happening the ways in which the Old Testament anticipated it, in super abundance. That's 180 gallons of wine. It's a lot. Certainly not necessary to have that much wine, but that's the kind of messianic age that we're in. That's the kind of unveiling that's happening here where God has sent his anointed agent, his redeeming agent into the world, and he comes with banquets and he comes with wine in tow. Jesus brings his own wine to the messianic banquet that this wedding in Cana turns out to be. I guarantee you the groom and the father of the groom and the bride family had no idea that their little wedding party here in this small village of Cana was going to turn into the messianic banquet that was promised in the Old Testament. And Jesus is here, the Messiah, bringing his own wine. And not just bringing his wine, bringing it in spades. (laughs) how God works. So Jesus is overflowing with his kindness. When Jesus turns water into wine, it's a claim that all the promises of God for redemption in a new world are upon us in this man who happens to be God, the creator of the universe, and is anticipating the greatest moments of his self-unveiling. 
I don't know. We live in a world marked by decay. I know you feel this tension. A lot of platitudes often offered in Christian faith. A lot of bumper sticker approaches to Christianity. Red Mountain Church has never been a church that's been platitudinous in its approach to the faith. I'm, I'm sure you haven't changed. You don't, like, you don't like syrupy, sentimental stuff. You've never been that way, and I assume you're not. But I know that many of you are in a position in your lives, I'm assuming it's the case, where you're really hoping that God does make everything new. That you're really hoping that the Messiah has come to bring the new age and that he brings his own wine. You really are hoping that God is operating from his seventh day of existence to bring the world to completion and fruition for the redemption of humanity and for the outbreaking of the kingdom of God. Because we know the brokenness in our own hearts and lives. We know the brokenness behind our front doors. We know the brokenness in our neighborhoods. We know what we see all around us. And we are yearning on this Trinity Sunday. As we look at a text like John chapter 2, and we can see the creative and the redemptive power of our Savior Jesus, who can take water and turn it into wine, and in doing so says, by the way, the messianic age you have longed for, the promise that we heard read so beautifully from Isaiah chapter 65 about a new heavens and a new earth, it's on you. I'm here, and I am making everything new. Take these words, O Lord. Seal them in our hearts. Let us have faith that you give us in your kindness to believe that this story from so long ago, which directs us toward the future in hope and anticipation of your inbreaking again, that it would give us confidence and courage in our current moment to believe that you are a God who enters into the world to redeem your people for the sake of your kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.